Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. Can I just start by saying that the first law the Parliament should pass is one banning daytime counts. Two days of stress, no alcohol and the same horrible hangover feeling that lasted for days rather than hours. I say bring back overnight counts, it's exciting and it gets the job done. So before we get into the team analysis, I have a mea culpa. I may have got my predictions about the SNP failing to get a majority right, but they did win massively. They took 64 seats, increasing majorities, upping vote share and were just one short of a majority, which is pretty astonishing after 14 years in government. I also predicted a few seats for Albert and they completely bombed, so I got that well wrong. Although I have to say in my defence, Alex Salmond was right in the end about a list vote being wasted, a wasted vote for the SNP, given one million votes basically delivered to SNP MSPs. So maybe the message was right, but the messenger wrong, which I'm sure we can discuss. Um, But after being billed as the most historic election of devolution, in the final analysis, the numbers haven't really shifted that much. The party makeup in the parliament looks pretty much the same as it did after the 2016 election. The SNP are on 64, that's one up on 2016. The Tories, no change at all on 31, and Labour with a slight dip to 22. A change of just two for the Greens, who are now on eight. And that was after all these big claims that they would get well into double digits. But the numbers actually belie a radical transformation for the Greens, with four new faces. Lorna Slater, Maggie Chapman, Ariane Burgess and Gillian Mackay. And I'm sure we will talk about whether or not the Greens was robbed of another couple of seats later. And the poor Lib Dems. Despite Willie's campaign stunts, they dropped one and are now just a party of four in the Parliament, which means they don't even qualify for a question at the weekly FMQs. Although, still to see whether or not Nicola Sturgeon, in the spirit of all working together, maybe changes that. Let's see. So while the political arithmetic may not have changed much beneath it all, this is a different looking parliament. There are 42 new, newish faces entering Holyrood Holyrood this session, 43 if you count Douglas Ross. He was first elected in 2016, but as we all remember, left for Westminster a year later, but now comes back as the leader of the Tory benches. That's roughly a third of the parliament that's changed. More new and newish faces in 2016, but after 22 years, Scotland's parliament is perhaps starting to reflect more of the country it represents, certainly in terms of the people now in there. Lots of historic firsts. Labour's Pam Duncan Clancy is the first permanent wheelchair user. Parliament's youngest member, the SNP's Emma Roddock, lives with a borderline personality disorder and also has post-traumatic stress disorder. We now have Holyrood's first woman of colour, the SNP's Cowcub Stewart, who actually first stood in 1999, so it's been a long time coming. And the Tories' Pam Gasal, who also happens to be the first Sikh MSP. And according to Anna Sarwa, Paul O'Kane, Labour's first ever male LGBT MSP. I had to do a quick double take at that one. We now have six BAME MSPs in the Parliament, where once we just had two. And women make up almost half the numbers, which obviously has to be a good thing. And we also have a Baroness in there. So while maybe there's been a lot of criticism held at Ruth Davidson for leaving the Scottish Parliament to go to the House of Lords, We've heard very little about Katie Clark or Baroness Clark of Kilwinning or Kilwinning in the county of Ayrshire to give her Sunday name. She's been elected now to serve as a Labour MSP for the West of Scotland, so I better sharpen up on my curtsying. The Holyrood team have done an amazing job covering the results and all without the usual alcohol that might accompany these events when we're all in the office watching things unfold. So Andrew, what have been your takeaways? Well, do I have to start with a mere culpa as well? Because I too uh, made some predictions at the end of the last podcast, and I too predicted Alex Hammond and Alpa would do brilliantly. Uh, and of course, they didn't. They completely and utterly bombed. 
Hang so, your so head in shame. I, it, I've been hanging my head in shame pretty much <laughs> since I made that prediction. Um, but you know, that aside, uh, let me let me let me go into some punditry for the new week, some more new punditry for the new session. Um, I, I think the results showed us that Scotland is still deeply divided over independence, over the constitution. I think two of the the, the key figures, so the the unionist parties, the pro UK parties, that is. The Conservatives, Labour and Lib Dems, well, they took, uh, let me just get the figures up here, they took 15.4% of the vote on the constituency uh, vote. Uh, the SNP and the Greens and Alba on the list took 50.1% of the vote. So it kind of gives you a, a real indication of, 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 of where we are and, and how stuck we are on this constitutional question. It, it dominated the campaign. Um, to the extent that we saw quite a number of the results, uh, uh, the pro-UK parties sort of benefited a little bit, or there was a benefit from tactical voting, uh, is maybe the best way of putting it. You you see the Labour voters, um, not so much Labour voters lending their votes to the Tories and Tory voters lending their votes to Labour and, and to the Lib Dems and so on. Um, uh, and I think that sort of, that kind of, kibosh the SNP's push for a, 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 an overall majority in the parliament. So that, I think that's that's really the key takeaway, the, the idea that independence isn't going away anywhere, because of course the, the result means that there is undeniably a, a pro-independence majority in the Scottish parliament now, um, between the SNP and the Greens. So um, uh, as much as the campaign was dominated by a second independence referendum, I, I think the next five years, uh, will almost certainly be dominated by the constitution as well. I mean, Jenny, did you really think that this election would um, lance the boil, if you like, on the constitutional question? Absolutely not. I mean, to be honest, and this isn't going to be popular with one side of uh, the the opinion, is I think the only thing that would actually answer that would be another independence referendum. And I know, I know unionists would, would hate that, but you know, we're we're going to keep talking about it and talking about it until there is that referendum, which either is another no vote, which I think would would put an end to it. For, I mean, there would be grumbling, but it would put an end to it for a while because I mean, you can't vote in it a third time. It would be very very difficult to justify any other referendum in the near future, or it would be a yes vote and independence would go ahead. And likewise, there would be grumbling by people who didn't like the way that had turned out in the same way we've had with Brexit. But actually what we've seen with Brexit is there was disruption. There was a lot of discussion about it for the years that it was the agreement was was being um, made and, and that things were unsettled and before it happened. But actually since it's happened, there's been a bit of upset about the way some of the things have worked out, but largely it's been considered a done deal and uh, no more talking about it for a while. So, yeah, unpopular as it might be, I think actually the only way to stop endlessly talking about the Constitution would be a referendum that would probably settle it, I wouldn't say once and for all, but potentially for you know another decade or two. I mean, Chris, it's interesting. You know, Andrew says there that the referendum and the whole constitutional question dominated the election campaign, which I think we would all agree on. But of course, the First Minister kept saying, no, no, the election is about um, COVID recovery. It's about a serious leader for serious times. But I kind of feel we will be talking about the constitution continually. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think what's quite interesting is that if, if you ask voters, even independence uh, supporting voters, whether there should be a, a referendum in the next two years, you know, the vast majority don't think there should be a referendum. The vast majority of people uh, take the kind of consensus view that the pandemic is the biggest challenge we face and we need to get on tackling that, getting the NHS back onto a, an even keel. But regardless of that, uh, as Andrew says, the constitution was clearly the big issue. Uh, it was clearly why people voted tactically for the Tories or for the Lib Dems. Um, and it's, as Jenny says, it's going to be the issue which which dominates uh, Parliament over the next five years, whether we like it or not. Yeah, I mean, Louise, I want to get let's let's put a ban on this podcast talking about the constitution for this session, if you like. Let's get back to the election. What are we going to talk about? <laughs> I know. I'm sure we'll find some things, Chris. But, but Louise, you became the bit of the queen of the spreadsheets at Holyrood and kind of watching those results coming in. 
what really happened on Friday, the day after the election, and then into Saturday? Which 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 were the most important? Do you think, or the most exciting? Uh, I'm not sure how to feel of the title Queen of Spreadsheets, <laughs> but we'll go with it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Friday was um, perhaps the more interesting day, just in terms of um, you know constituencies flipping and stuff. Um, so I actually got the chance to go to the Edinburgh count, which was quite interesting. Um, and the three that were announced in Edinburgh were Central, Southern and Western. Um, and those were sort of the three target constituencies for the SNP. Um, and that was really interesting to go to because as soon as I arrived, maybe just after lunchtime um, and saw Alex Cole Hamilton, uh, the Lib Dem MSP immediately and sort of sidled up to him and said, how's it going? And he was at half 12 going dead confident that he'd got it in the bag. Um, of course, it turned out he had and had a overwhelming majority. Um, and, and at the Edinburgh account also, you know, the results were pretty much well known from about 4pm. They just weren't officially declared until a few hours later. Um, there was also uh, places like uh, Dunbarton, which previously had the smallest majority. They were That was announced on Friday as well, I think. Um, and that actually stayed with Labour's Jackie Bailey. So that was really interesting. Um, that was interesting, Louise, wasn't it? Because really that moment when we discovered that Jackie Bailey had retained that seat and not the SNP had not won it, that was the moment, I think, where people really felt that the majority was not going to happen for the SNP. Yeah, absolutely. So they, um, earlier on the Friday, they had actually realised that they'd won seats in East Lothian and Eyre from the Tories, which belongs to South Scotland. But um, bizarrely, because of the way the, well, not bizarrely, <laughs> because of the way the list um, seats work, that means that they actually lost the two seats, two seats in, South, in the South Scotland region that they had. So they were kind of null gains. Whereas when they gained Edinburgh Central, that was plus one. So all eyes were basically on Dumbarton and then on Saturday, Aberdeenshire West, um, because those were kind of needed to be able to get that majority, um, which, you know, is a difficult thing to do in our election system. So when news came out that um, Dumbarton had been kept by Labour, basically all of Saturday was just spent waiting for Aberdeenshire West. Um, and they actually didn't declare until quite late into the afternoon. So it was a long day waiting for that. Yeah. I mean, actually talking about counts, Andrew, because you were at the uh, count in Glasgow, very different feel. I mean, normally, although Louise is talking about sidling up to Alex Cole Hamilton, obviously at a social distance, um, <laughs> you can usually get much more of a feel for what is happening. And, and it just felt so odd, not either not being at a count or being at a count and, and not really being able to sidle up in the way that you would normally sidle up. Yeah, it was, first of all, it was it was great getting out of the house. I think that's only the second job I've been out on in the last year and a bit now. See, and it was an just election difference. delivers. <laughs> it does, it does. I was To be actually in the same room with other journalists and not just on a Zoom press conference with them was very exciting. Um, and, you know, so it, 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 it was, it definitely lacked the intensities of other counts. I don't know if that's just because it was during the daytime, uh, you know, and not at night when everyone is stoked up on on caffeine and cigarettes um it was it was much more of a a, a, a relaxed affair i suppose um but yeah, you could still sidle up to people keeping your your social distance and, and, and sort of get a bit of a gossip about what was going on what was happening um and it was because uh, normally what happens at election counts is you, you have all the activists there who've been working on the campaign and they go there and they do a thing called sampling, which is where they stand in front of the counts and they sort of run a wee sort of tally. And that's how they kind of tell how they're doing. So they see that, OK, in that pile, of, there's, there's 10 Tory votes in this ward and there's 200 SNP votes. And so that means this ward is pretty much going to go for the SNP and we replicate that, so on and so forth. And, and, and so there wasn't as many people sampling at this count as there normally are. Um, but there were still people there and you could still go and look at their uh, their, their tally marks and their, their, their clipboards and have a wee chat with them and, and get a rough idea of, of, of what was going on, what was happening. So so very early on, uh, I knew that Alipa had had a disastrous election. Um, and very early on, I knew that the Greens were doing uh, reasonably well in Glasgow and that Labour were doing very well, but there had been a certain amount of vote switching. So I think everyone kind of knew what was, was happening sort of relatively early on. Um, 
Was, was, was yeah. that the moment, Andrew, when you were phoning me trying to change your predictions? On, I think it was. Yeah. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the many moments. Yeah. <laughs> and then, I, sorry. I was just about to say, because obviously there was a, a couple of other issues at Glasgow, because uh, it was, I think, probably the first time you'd had quite a lot of the candidates in, in the in the same place at the same time, sort of physically. Um, uh, and there's a really horrible incident in Glasgow where, um, I don't know if I want to go into that, actually, I was going to talk about the, the Nazi guys sort of giving Hamza Yusuf some hassle. I don't know if you want to talk about that. Yeah. Just ended, thinking that was a sort of a... A Glasgow thing. It was horrendous, actually, the scenes from that. And I and Humza has obviously had to put up with a lot of abuse, but to actually see it at account. Mm. I mean, these guys were they were horrific. They were sort of you know wearing yellow stars. Uh, they were um, doing Nazi salutes on the actual count floor. It was yeah, genuinely horrible. And they were they were going up and they were they were giving Humza Yusuf hassle purely because of the colour of his skin. Um, uh, so that was that was quite that was quite disturbing and upsetting, really. I think, uh, um, yeah. I mean, they they claimed that they were being satirical, but really, yeah, yeah. I don't think they were. Were you no, about to mention the incident with Pam Duncan Clancy, um, the candidate who's in a wheelchair, not being able to get into the count? Yeah, they are uh, that that too. So you know, obviously, she came down and she wasn't. Um, there was, I think, a problem with. With, with getting her into where the other candidates were and getting her into the actual count, which is it's kind of ridiculous in 2021, isn't it? I mean, these were problems we should have sorted 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, the fact that someone in the wheelchair can get into a, a venue, which a venue which is still you know kind of brand new uh, as well. There's, there's no, absolutely no excuse for, for, for an inaccessible count. I mean, I have to say I've been heartened though now seeing Pam on her first couple of days in the Parliament, she's been really full of praise for the way the Parliament has dealt with any accessibility issues that she may have had. And they've kind of really um, just been fantastic in making sure that she fits in in the same way as everybody else. Um, Jack, I was just going to come to you because, you know, when Andrew talks about um, that moment where, you he, you know, you could tell from the count where the Alpa had certainly done disastrously, it reminds you of that picture of Alex Salmond at the count in Aberdeen. And he did look like a um, fairly uh, distraught character, didn't he? Yeah, <clears throat> sorry. Yeah, he looked. Um, he certainly looked quite dejected. You know, as if he sort of saw where things were going and that it wasn't going to be their day or their couple of days. And also, you know, there was quite. I was um, quite struck by uh, one of the interviews that he did um, with one of the, I think one of the radio stations, and there was a clip on Twitter where he was kind of he'd almost you know reframed what success was um, for the Alba Party. Um, you know, kind of not talking about um, super majorities or, um, you know, winning seats anymore and kind of said, you know, what they'd managed to achieve um, by setting up a party in six weeks and, you know, getting the campaigners together, you know, and running a campaign, that was success for them. So it certainly, I think it certainly saw how it was going um, and, you know, sort of maybe redefined what success, you know, was for them as a party. But it's interesting to kind of think about where that leaves them now, you know, because um, they failed to get any MSPs, you know, will, will they kind of continue from here or, you know, will it just sort of wither away? Yeah. I mean, it, clearly they've got two MPs and they have said they're going to fight the council elections. I mean, just as a kind of a reflection, if you like, on my time in politics, I mean, I followed um, Salmond in 1992 when uh, there were all the predictions that they were the SNP were going to pick up so many seats at Westminster. And I think I was working at Scotland on Sunday at the time and spent a week or two weeks up in the days when an editor would allow you to do that, following him around the constituency. And I can remember being really struck at the night of the count where he clearly won his seat, but the SNP made no breakthrough at all. And I watched a man just pick himself up and go, right, the fight continues. I didn't feel the same way when I saw him at the count in Aberdeen this uh, last week. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it'd be a good thing to go away now and in another direction. Yeah, I mean, I think I think where uh, Alpa goes from, from now is, is, is quite interesting. I mean, the I know a lot of people uh, get kind of frustrated at the media for the amount of attention that Alex Salmond and Alpa got during the during the campaign, particularly when you look at the result that they ultimately ended up getting. But 
for me, it kind of in, injected something uh, for, for a couple of weeks anyway into a campaign that was was kind of lackluster. I know that's that's an analysis that not everyone necessarily agrees with, but you know, I think the fact that we knew um, largely what the result was going to be, um, you know, the the the, the entry of, of Alapa into the campaign uh, was quite exciting. I don't think we we necessarily thought it was going to they were going to crash and burn in quite quite the way they ended up doing, but. You know they've already sort of said that uh, they're here for the long term, so it'd be interesting to see where where he goes next. I guess we'll watch that space. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to what we ha- now have, and let's look at the parties. So the Greens. Now I think Louise mentioned in the last podcast that every election that comes along, the Greens are always going to make this massive breakthrough. Now they have upped their seats by two, but um, not quite the breakthrough that people expected. Jenny, what what are your thoughts on it? Well, I think the interesting thing is they might have increased their seats to 10 had it not been for another party that that looked quite similar and had a logo with the word green in it quite prominently. And there's a, it seems like they could have had another seat in Glasgow and they could have had a seat in the south of Scotland had it not been for this party, um, Independent Green Voice, which was obviously higher up the, the ballot paper. And it seems like quite a number of people voted for them thinking they were the Scottish Greens. So, I mean, the Greens have got the, the largest number of MSPs now that they've ever had. They've got eight. But yes, there is a possibility that what was predicted in the polls could have come true. They were just, you know, a hundred or so, you know, hundred couple of hundred votes short, I think, of, of getting those extra two in both places. And if those independent Green Voice votes had actually gone to the Scottish Greens, as in most cases, we don't, obviously we don't know what voters were thinking, but we suspect in most cases people thought they were voting for the Greens in that case. They could have got those extra two and that, and that would have left the Conservatives with, with two less. So it could be it could have been quite a different conversation actually about the results of the election that would have changed things a little bit in terms of obviously the, the unions versus the, the independence um, majority and also in terms of um, how well the Conservatives have done because at the moment they've, they've come on the come back with the same number of seats as they had before. So so that's kind of interesting. But yeah, we haven't seen quite the the breakthrough from the Greens that, you know, some polls were predicting as much as 12, 13, 12, 13 seats. And that was obviously an over prediction. But they, they have done better and we've we've seen their support increasing. Yeah, I, I actually find it a really hard uh, argument about the independent Green Party or the independent Greens. And obviously a complaint has gone into the Electoral Commission about them being on the ballot paper. But it's quite a hard one for a party to basically be saying that the voters are a bit stupid. Um, you know, people didn't vote the, for the Liberal Party thinking it was the um, Liberal Democrats. So there's, there are a lot of ifs in there. And I guess we just have to accept where we are, where we are. But there's no doubt that Lorna Slater became a bit of a star of the election campaign for the Greens. That seemed to be a very good move to push her front and centre. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think she had a really good election campaign. So she kind of came into you know, uh, as a virtual unknown, I think absolutely unknown outside you know, the, the, the Hollywood bubble, the political circles. Um, and she, yeah, she, she, she upped her profile uh, quite considerably. And um, she really sort of, her star really shone, I think, in that first leaders debate. If you can remember that one, it was the, the BBC when she was, uh, that was, that was kind of almost her, her, her public debut um and yeah and she sort of handled herself well um, and she also it's, it's it's i think she benefits from a number of things i think she benefits from from um in the nicest possible way not being patrick harvey who we've all become i suppose quite accustomed to her seeing so when you see her you think you you you, you um that difference is 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 pretty good uh but also that she kind of knows what she's talking about when it comes to uh renewables when it comes to the environment because she that's that's her job. She's an engineer, so she um, she 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 walks the walk as well as, as talks the talk. So it'll be interesting to see what happens now in Holyrood. I'm not sure how it's going to work out because uh, in the last session, so Patrick Harvey and Alison 
Johnston were sort of co-conveners of the Holyrood party, of the MSP group, and would take it in turns to ask questions and that sort of stuff. So I don't know if that means that Alison Johnston is going to be uh, demoted or if there's going to be three co-conveners. I mean, if you've got two co-conveners, why can't you have three co-conveners? Um, and they'll all take it in turns. So, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see. But I, I think she will make a mark uh, over the course of the next five years in Holyrood, uh, you know. And Louise, what about the Lib Dems? I mean, you, you've um, taken a bit of a pop at uh, Willie Rennie and his stunts in your latest sketch, but his stunts did not translate into votes, did they? Um, I mean, to be fair, his uh, his own seat, you know, he came on top, he'd increase his vote share. So who knows? Maybe the photo calls worked for the voters of North East Fife. Um, but yeah, the big thing about the, the Lib Dems is that, you know, they dropped, uh, as you said at the start, four MSPs from five, um, which means that they're sort of uh, not officially recognised um, by by the parliament. Um as, as a party that would get, you know, representation on the Bureau and um, and a question at FMQs. Um, I thought the interesting thing with the Lib Dems was, though, that, you know, they did keep their four seats. Um, and certainly in Edinburgh Western and North East Fife, you know, they increased their vote share. What they lost is their, their North East seat. Um, so I don't know whether whether they, they increase seats in their constituency increased votes in their constituency because of, you know, that, that unionist tactical vote or, um, um, and actually their um, vote share just has gone down overall or whether it's actually the unionist tactical vote in the Northeast that works against them. It's difficult to, to kind of judge that. They are energetic constituency uh, representatives, I have to say. I mean, both Willie and Alex Cole-Hamilton, I mean, really do put their all into representing their communities and maybe that's um, a lesson for many others. And the same with Jackie Bailey as well, sorry to interrupt, yeah. I was just going to say she's well known for representing Dumbarton and that and that's definitely part of her popularity too. Yeah, definitely. Um, Chris, on the Tory side, I mean, the Tories basically, I mean, in some ways, Douglas Ross has been vindicated because he certainly has done no worse than Ruth Davidson managed to do. Um, do you think he'll come back in and make a difference? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I thought uh, Douglas Ross uh, didn't have the best of campaigns. He, he didn't, uh, he, he, I didn't think he performed particularly well in any of the debates, the TV debates. But as you say, they've they've um, they've matched their their best ever results, so it gives them a platform to build on. And to be fair to Douglas, you know he he's not been the leader of the party for very long. And I remember um, when when Ruth became the leader, there was huge question marks over her leadership, and and she certainly grew into that position. So um, you know let's let's give him some time. But um, yeah, I, I mean I I certainly thought that uh, on a personal level. Um, on a personality level, Anna Sarwar had a much better campaign, but then, you know, that's not borne out by by the results. So, um, you know, perhaps uh, perhaps Douglas Ross's strategy was was the right one. But I just I just fear that, um, you know, we, we're going to get into the business of of seeing everything through the prism of the Constitution and the independence debate for the next five years. Uh, and if that's if that's going to be the, the Tory tactic to continue talking about. Um, you know, the SNP's desire for a second referendum, then uh, we're going to be going around in circles. Let's talk about some of the people that have gone and some of the ones that we think will be the ones to watch, which is obviously a good game to do. Um, I mean, I have to say on a personal level, really sad to see John Scott go. Um, he's just been, I suppose, a nice politician and uh, someone who I would seek his counsel on on many occasions just to try and get cut through some of the divisive chat because I didn't find him particularly tribal um, and also he was somebody that every morning cleaned up Holyrood Park on his walk through to the parliament which I always thought was rather nice so I was really sad to see him go and I was sad to see Paul Wheelhouse and Joan McAlpine go um, I think they all provided a lot of intelligence to the parliament I don't know if anybody else has got any thoughts on that. Well, I would say, I mean, I completely agree on the, you know, John Scott. I mean, 21 years as well, you've got to remember as, you know, representing 
a constituency. So, I mean, first off, you know, I mean, that's quite a spell, you know, doing that role. Um, there's a lot of hard work in, involved in it. And, and so, you know, it'll be disappointing to see someone go in that sense. And But, uh, you know, by the same measure, the SNP will see that as a, you know, a real gain, winning that seat, um, you know, off such an experienced politician. Yeah, I mean, Joan McAlpine losing um, the constituency vote, and obviously she'd been put much further down on the list uh, seat this time. Some people saw that as a victory, if you like, in the whole uh, very divisive um, debate that's gone on around the Gender Recognition Act and the reforms of that. I mean, do you feel in any way, Jenny, that that debate has gone away? I don't think it's it's gone away, but obviously the makeup of the parliament has changed and that's probably going to change the debate in parliament. I mean, Joe McAlpine, I think, was placed actually by members top of the list, I think I'm right in saying, but yeah. was moved down because she didn't have a disability. Um, so she lost out in that way. But I think if you think of um, a lot of the particularly female MSPs that were standing up for women's rights and, and talking about the, you know, the, the issue for women about some of this reform, people like Joe McAlpine, but also um, Jenny Mara, um, Elaine Smith, there were um, Joanne Lamont. There's, there's a number of faces have gone from this parliament. Most of them have stood down voluntarily and obviously Joan has, has lost her seat. So um, We've got a different makeup of the parliament in terms of I think there's probably going to be more of a, a unified voice in, in favour of that reform of the Gender Recognition Act and fewer of those dissenting voices asking questions about it now, um, which I find concerning personally that I think it may go through without without question. I, I did think it was interesting that in in a kind of day of very positive messages, Maggie Chapman, who won a seat for the Green Party, she put out a tweet basically saying that this um, was the North East rejecting transphobes, which I thought was a bit um, ill thought. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know um, that the, the subject of independence is banned in this particular podcast, but <laughs> I, I mean, I think, um, you know, some of these issues were while undoubtedly important or massively overplayed. I mean, you only have to look at the performance of Joe Fitzpatrick in Dundee, uh, you know, sacked as a, a drugs minister. Dundee, now the drugs capital of Western Europe, and he gets returned with an increased majority, which just shows that, you know, voters are voting for a, a particular set of issues or a particular issue in mind. And some of these other issues that, that, that the media uh, gets quite rightly exercised about just just don't cut through with the electorate in, in the way that we we sometimes think they do. I think that's true, Chris, but it it doesn't kind of go away from the point uh, I suppose Jenny's making that this has been the GRA reform has been such a divisive thing, particularly within the bubble, and it may now be something that can just pass through Parliament. But I think that will be it'll be interesting to see what happens with with that debate and and yeah you're right it, it's slightly depressing perhaps that politicians aren't judged on their actual record yeah i mean i, I think un, undoubtedly you know somebody uh somebody who's not uh first and foremost thinking about the constitution um and is looking at issues uh that, that matter to people's everyday lives here and now the nhs education drugs deaths it's frustrating to see so much of that uh, discussion just mired in talk of the constitution, but um, as I say, that's that's banned, isn't it? Yeah. From the <laughs> I'm sure there'll be many, many more podcasts where we talk about independence. <laughs> um, let's talk about ones to watch because I personally think there's a, a number of very interesting candidates that have come in now um, as MSPs, uh, particularly on the Tory side. And there's some really interesting ones as well on the Labour side. Obviously, the SNP have brought, uh, I've got Angus Robertson back in um, and he's almost immediately being tipped for the top. I never know if that's a good thing or not a good thing, but he was obviously a former um, deputy leader of the party. He led the group at Westminster and lots of talk about he'll immediately be given a place in the ministerial team. And that may well be the case, but, um, you know, he also has never held a brief. So that's also something to think about. Um, there's uh, Sandesh Gulen, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, who's um, new Tory MSP, who's a GP, 
Uh, I think he was back at work actually on Monday as a GP and he's also the physician for I think Queen's Park Football Club and I also hear big things about Michael Mara. Pam is obviously great. We know Pam at at Holyrood because of the work we've done with Public Health Scotland. Uh, Anybody else got particular ones that they're watching? I I was actually going to echo that on uh, Sandesh. Um, He is, you know, he's he's appeared on television a few times to kind of talk about um, the issues that the GPs have been facing during the pandemic and I've always found them to be um, very articulate and very intelligent so I think he'll be a real asset to the parliament um, I would seem Um, and on that front you know we mentioned the Tories as well I think um, you know Russell Findlay um, it'll be interesting to see um, you know him come in Um, his background as an investigative journalist you know his role now um, with the Scottish Conservatives um, in a communications sense um, it'll be an interesting switch to see to see him make and then obviously we've got the ones that we've we've touched on already um you know Lorna Slater is full of energy very seems like a very um bright person and very focused um and you know also it's great to see the likes of uh, Pam Duncan Glancy come in as well yeah I think in just a, a general sense it's great to have politicians that have actually had uh, proper jobs and uh haven't just worked their way up the the ranks of various political parties. You know, people that have worked in, in the NHS, people that have worked as teachers, journalists, lawyers. Um, you know, these these sort of people are 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 the are the kinds that we we need in the parliament. Yeah, and I don't know. We need people... more journalists. No, we don't need more journalists. Yeah, fewer, less journalists. Fewer, fewer journalists. Uh, and we've got an ex we've got an ex journalist as a as a prime minister, and look how that's turned out. So, uh... superb. <laughs> oh, exactly. Thanks. Yeah, on, on that note, I, I think also, I mean, perhaps Jim Fairley, um, oh, yes. who yeah. has taken pressure south in Kenrosha, I think he's got he's got a background as a farmer and as a sort of rural entrepreneur. He started the first farmer's market, I think, in Scotland. So he could be an interesting one because he's obviously got that expertise in rural affairs. Um, so that, that brings something. Also, I think actually uh, Paul Sweeney, um, one of the younger Labour MSPs. He was an MP briefly before, and obviously, he was he was quite green. He was quite new when he became an MP, but he's he's had a time for a bit more life experience. He's been working particularly with um, Peter Crycant on the um, the drugs consumption ban, and that's a, that's an issue he's very passionate about. So I think that could be interesting in terms of the whole drugs issue. It's actually quite interesting how many ex MPs are now in the Scottish Parliament or have been returned to the Scottish Parliament in this, this election. So you've got Neil Gray and Michelle Thompson and Angus Robertson for the SNP. Um, then you've got uh, Paul Sweeney for Labour. And then for the Tories, you've got Stephen Kerr, who was the MP for Stirling and is now has come straight in and is now the party's chief whip. So it'll be interesting to see if that has any impact on the dynamic in Holyrood. And Katie Clark. And Katie Clark, of course, Baroness Clark. Yeah, an MP and now in the House of Lords. Um, Also, Michelle Thompson coming back, that'll be an interesting dynamic. I mean, she obviously worked um, under Angus Robertson when he was the Westminster leader as well. Be interesting just to see how they all work together. Yeah, definitely. Given that we know that the SNP, there have been splits in the SNP um, over number of issues the last couple of years yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens now because obviously a lot of the people in the party who are critical of Nicola Sturgeon's position on IndyRef2 and on on the GRA uh, well they left they left a couple of months back to go and join Alex Salmond and Alipa uh, so the the first a lot of the internal critics in the first minister's party are, are no longer there I would say um, public critics Yes, sure, (laughs) sure. You know, I mean, I I still look back on when I first started writing about the GRA reforms, and I tell you, half the cabinet at that time, the ministerial team, were telling me privately they wanted this kicked into the long grass. So people will either be doing a quick vote fast or um, we'll see some interesting voices coming out. Can we move on to what's to happen next? I mean, we've got the election of the PO on Thursday which is when the, the, this broadcast is going out. Um, who do we think might take over from Ken McIntosh? Do you want me to kick off with what I what I might like to see and what might not happen? We're all wary I mean, of predictions now. I, I know completely. Oh, you shouldn't be, Jenny. You did very well in the I election. Yeah. <laughs> Although I changed the rules so the person that got the best prediction pays for the drinks. I so. noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's my prerogative. Um, so I understand that uh, Jackson Carlo might have been interested in putting his name forward. I'm not sure if that will come to reality. I think that would have been that would be interesting. Um, I also heard that Murder Fraser had thought about it, but didn't think he would get very far with it. The most obvious name I've heard is Alison Johnson of the Greens. Um, but there are other people that I think could be interesting should their names be put forward, like Sarah Boyack, for instance, who's been in the Parliament for a long time with a slight interruption, but almost from the beginning. Um, and there are, there are, I guess it, I guess it depends about what you're looking for, and if you're looking for a states person, or if you're looking for somebody to grow into the role, or just somebody that's good at bringing all sides together. Anyone willing to dip their toe in this I've one? Also heard Christine Graham's of course, name bandied yeah. about. Obviously, she was a deputy presiding officer before. And um, someone, I, I don't know if it was a joke, someone had mentioned Willie Rennie. I'm not sure if, if I would I take actually, that all that seriously. But. I, I, I actually thought there was a rule about leaders not being able to start. I mean, obviously, he'd have to um, leave his party, which I think would be very difficult for Willie Rennie. But um, I'm not. So sure. I mean, the numbers make it all the more interesting, I suppose. I think they make it dif difficult for everyone, for both sides, really, because of it being so close in terms of, if if you're talking constitutional terms, again, between the the independent and the unionist side. Yeah. Or the S well, the, rather the SNP and, and their opponents, I yeah. should say, probably. Louise, what were you going to say? Um, just similar, really, that, you know, that it's, there's also the difficulty of how you balance the parties, because at the moment it's, what, 64, 65, and neither neither the SNP or the opposition will really want to lose an MSP when numbers are that tight. Yeah, well, someone's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that would be interesting. I mean, I, I I thought the names would be made public by now, but obviously that's that's not happened. So what about, once we've got the PO out of the way, um, the First Minister will be presumably elected as the First Minister. Uh, that would be next Tuesday. And then we'll start to hear the ministerial team um, be put forward. Any thoughts on this from anyone? I think you'd like to sort of point out Angus Robertson earlier on. Obviously, it's interesting because he's... The first minister, he's a close ally of the first minister. He's, he'll be seen as a safe pair of hands. And, you know, certainly with Mike Russell no longer being in the cabinet, it kind of feels that like that's almost the perfect sized hole for Angus Robertson to fit into. Um, you know, that, that looking at the constitution, looking at Brexit and all, all that sort of stuff. But because he's someone who might conceivably one day be interested in being first minister, perhaps he's got his eyes on you know, one of the big uh, domestic offices sort of around education or, or, or health. Um, I think so, so that's the other thing. I think we're going to see a fairly massive shakeup here. I, I'd imagine a lot of people who are in position or have been in position are going to, to move on. And I, I can understand that, the, you know, the first minister might be keen to uh, get uh, certainly a new face in education where John Sweeney's time has been, well, difficult. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with Andrew. I think the, I think the SNP need a fairly dramatic reshuffle just to get a sort of infusion of new ideas. I mean, the, the education brief has been a sort of poison chalice over the last decade or so, but I, I do think it's time for a new education secretary. Uh, and obviously there's, there's, uh, there's a need for a new health secretary, and that, that's going to be an absolutely massive, massive job moving forward. I think, um, I mean, from what we're hearing, there's a lot of chat. I mean, God, who knows? It's it's all in Nicola Sturgeon's head at the moment, isn't it? But we've we've heard that there may be a reduction in the cabinet secretary seats and an increase in the ministerial seats purely to get some more people experienced enough to then jump up to cab sec. I mean, I guess my own view is it might be sensible to move John Swinney back much more into his deputy first minister role and perhaps take on the constitutional role. Um, if Angus Robertson has aspirations to be the leader of the party or first minister, I think he needs to get experience in a brief because he's not had that. So maybe putting him into a cab sex role would be a bit of a jump. Uh, and I certainly, I remember when Jean Freeman came into the parliament in 2016 Everyone believed she would immediately be made a cab sec, and she wasn't. Um, 
as far as I can remember, she, she was a minister, was she not? Yeah, she was pretty much yeah. immediately made a minister, the minister of social security. Yeah. And then the jump up. And I think that's probably um, more likely if Angus is to come into the ministerial team, but of course could be wrong. And we understand that there might be, there will be a minister for climate change specifically. So there'll be a number of changes. I, I mean, when you, I guess all of us at the moment are thinking, well, what would be the succession plan in terms of a leadership? So the, there might be a sensible reason to give, for instance, Humza more of a finance type role as well. Um, Kate's obviously a finance secretary and she's only just taken that on last year so I, I, I can't imagine why she would be moved um, Jenny Golruth has done a good job in the roles that she's done ministerially maybe there'll be a need to think should she move up to a cab sec maybe education um, I don't know there's certainly going to be a lot of change isn't there yeah, I think I tend to be looking at some of the people that have got the life experience. We talked about that before, people who've, who've not just worked in politics, but had other careers. And I think in that case, you know, say Jim Fairley with his background in, in farming, Cowcub Stewart with her background in, in teaching, people that have got professional expertise, maybe looking at them for ministerial roles that perhaps relate to their, their areas of specialty and actually take advantage of that life experience. Yeah. And there's always the danger, isn't there, though, of looking at the new the new intake, if you like, and moving them up when you've got other people that have been there for quite a long time, who, like uh, Ruth Maguire, for instance, who, um, going back to the, the women's rights stuff, has been very good and very strong. She's been a great um, committee member and committee convener. Um, Bob Doris, Tom Arthur, people that have been around and been quite solid. Yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel like, uh, you know, Kate, Kate Forbes is maybe the one that's the least likely to be moved. Um, yeah. But um, it would be interesting. I mean, obviously, Hamza took over the justice brief at a time where uh, it was looking very tricky. And that, um, with the exception of the hate crime stuff, um, ha- has has kind of calmed down a bit. The problems of Police Scotland seem to have been forgotten about during the pandemic. So it might be interesting to see him move into a, a more high-profile uh, cabinet post, maybe health or, or education. Yeah, that could be interesting, couldn't it? I mean, one of the rumours is that Kate Forbes will go to health, you know, which would be a, a big a big change, a big job for her. But I mean, she's been seen, I think, as a fairly safe pair of hands, a competent pair of hands, ever since she took over from Derek Mackay with just hours' notice. And also, I mean, just from um, a personal election point of view, she her majority, she's got a massive majority mm. now, 15,000 or something, 16,000. Um, is, she, is she the sort of, um, would you say that she was the kind of obvious, obvious front runner to replace Nicola eventually? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that but maybe that's uh, another of our predictions we should be doing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Kate obviously gets mentioned, so does Holmes. I, I always think there are people that don't get mentioned that perhaps should. Like, I mean, the other person that could be coming back into a ministerial or cabinet set position, who I've always thought was very good, is Keith Brown. Um, I mean, he could be brought back in, who knows? There's Ivan McKee, very solid, done a good job during the pandemic around um, procurement, etc., um, there's Claire Hockey, who's done a great job as mental health minister. Um, she might be in line for going up to CabSec for health. Any thoughts from anyone else on that? I mean, you know, personally, I, I'm kind of less interested in personalities and, and, and more in, in just uh, ideas. And I know that's maybe not a politician's answer, but um, I, I would, I would given given you know given their 14 years in power um i think the smp is in desperate need of some fresh ideas and uh you know if there's some new new faces in the cabinet that that might help with that but um you know just sort of uh, shuffling the deck chairs i think i think more is required than, than just that yeah actually i think that's an interesting point that some of the bigger issues that have caused contention like as we've talked about the gra reforms um like a national care service and and other things that have just 
need some kites being flown. I mean, people are talking about should they be put to a citizens' assembly? So having gone through an election, having got a new parliament, having talked about a whole new government, do you think we should offload these things to a citizens' assembly? Uh, no, I personally don't think we should. I mean, I think we, you know, we were we were talking about this um, the other day, Mandy, about you know Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, I, I feel that she she needs to make the case for um, what an independent Scotland could be like with some of the policy decisions that she has at her fingertips right now. So so we've got powers over health, over education. Let's start doing some radical things in Scotland. Let's start doing things a bit differently and showing showing people what an independent Scotland might look like. I think something like social care is, is a great example of that. And Boris Johnson's been saying that he's going to fix social care for the last 12 months and he's done very little about it. This is an opportunity for Scotland to to do something different on on a massive issue which you know will at some point probably affect all of us um and that's what i'd like to see i'd like to see we know that the independence debate is going to be there rumbling away in the background but you know let's get down to business and start to start to actually affect policy change that's that's going to make a, an impact on people's lives yeah, I agree with you. I kind of feel, and I suppose I've said this in my latest column, that I kind of I look at, we've now had the SNP in power from 2007. That was to show that they could actually get into power, and they did. 2011, there was that majority, and that was going to be about um, team and record and vision, and then we got the referendum. We've now, I guess the SNP has proven the point that they can govern they now need to prove the point that independence would be a better way for Scotland. And I, I feel what I'd like to see from Nicola Sturgeon is, if you like, that gallusness that I mentioned in the column when we saw her standing up to Jada France and the um, far-right candidate in, Edinburgh, in Glasgow Southside. I'd like to see Nicola use her popularity and use her support to actually show the kind of country that she wants to create with the powers that she's got. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The, the, the thing you hear about Nicola Sturgeon again and again from from people that know her or commentators is that she's a very cautious politician and that the roadmap to to a second referendum will be done in such a way that it, it gives the, the SNP the best possible chance uh, of achieving a yes vote. But I would like to see, see her be a little less cautious. I mean, she, she's got this huge electoral mandate. She's arguably as popular uh, as she's ever been you know now is the time to to try and come up with some 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 radical ideas on on things like the attainment gap on on drugs deaths uh social care you know th- things that things that have a huge impact on people's lives and and you know start uh, getting to work on some of those things that feels like a good place for us to end let's see what happens yep. <laughs> thanks guys As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends, because everybody has an interest in politics.